Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli Calcio Podcast. This is a podcast all about Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you, as always, for listening. This is our Udinese review episode, and I'm joined by a guest to help me with this review. It's not his first time on the pod, but since his last appearance, he started a new show called Calcio e Basta. Danny Russo, welcome back. Thank you, Joe. Thank you so much for having me back on. It's a pleasure to have you. And we are going to talk a little bit about the show near the end of the pod. So stay tuned for that. But let's get started with the match. As you know, Napoli came from behind to win the match 2-1 to on a second half brace by Victor Osimhen. Gerard Delofeu opened the scoring in the first half. I won't use the typical cliche that this was a tale of two halves, but it was certainly two very different halves. Danny, before we get to the Delafeu goal, I just want to get your general thoughts on the match because I thought it started out similarly to the Milan match. It ended up being, at least in the first half, ended up being very different in terms of the number of chances created. And then obviously the second half was completely different than the Milan game. And the reason why I compare it to the Milan game is because we seem to be at least lately struggling more at the Maradona than we do away from home. We've been getting better results away from home like that Hellas Verona match. Yeah, it seems to be like we're playing so much better away from home. I just don't under, I really don't understand that. That was always like our point of reference, the San Paolo at the time, you know, like under... Mazzari days. I remember those vividly where it was like every single opponent. I felt we could go up against anyone at home. Didn't matter who the opponent was. Yet nowadays it seems as though that has shifted to being the away side of things. 
but yeah, like you said, you said it best at the beginning of the game. It's like the Milan match where we came out strong. Chances don't go in. And you allow Udinese to come back into the game. And they get a nice goal through Dale Lufeu. Yeah, we're going to talk about that goal in a little bit. But I just want a quick comment on playing at home versus playing away. I think, I guess part of it is related to just COVID and not being able to sell. We're still not at 100% capacity, right? Like it's still 75%. I suspect there was more than 75% at the stadium on uh, Saturday because it looked a little bit more full. Each time it looks a little bit more full. So I don't know how people are getting in, but they're finding a way to get in. At least on transfer mark, the attendance was 41,000. But Earlier in the season, we had all these issues with the Kurva and they were protesting because of these fan restrictions. So even when we did have fans in the stadiums, we didn't have the same environment necessarily. There were also complaints about ticket prices, and especially when you're playing multiple games a week. For some people, you just can't afford to go to every match. And, you know, we've seen reports with some of these bigger matches lately with Barcelona and then with with the Milan match that the club lowered the prices a little bit and ended up selling out. So it feels like maybe we're finally getting back somewhat to that old environment where it was just a fortress and and the club didn't lose at home. But Mm -hmm. this season, it's definitely been a challenge. I thought, like you said, in the first half, there were chances on both sides. And unfortunately, we conceded the opening goal. So let's talk a little bit about that because... A part of me wants to say that we should just tip our hats to Udinese and particularly to Delafeu for that strike. But then at the same time, I didn't think our defending in transition was particularly good there. I'm curious to know what you thought of that goal then. Listen, like I said, when you don't take your chances, you have clear-cut chances you always invite the other team to come and hurt you. Especially a team like Udinese, they will hurt you. We've always had trouble against them, regardless of the fact that we've, I think before this game, we won the last eight years at home against them. And now this is nine, I believe. However, even at home, they do give us problems. And like you said, it was a problem with transitioning defensively. You lose the ball, guys don't get back in time. And a player like Dale Lefeu can hurt you. I thought it was a well-worked goal. However, there's no excuse, especially in the first half to a team like Udinese. You can't let, you cannot let them get the front foot because they will sit back, and they did. Yeah, I think it was a combination of both quality play by Udinese and poor defending on our part. I think mm-hmm. from an Udinese perspective, they completed 12 passes in the buildup. Like you said, it was a well-worked goal. I thought McKengo and Pereira did a great job of getting between the lines in the buildup and they were playing quick passes and moving the ball vertically. And then the touch and the finish by Delafeu were pure class. When I watched the goal again, I realized that the pass was actually slightly behind him and he kind of hopped back into position to be able to set up the shot. And then he had to release the shot quickly because... yes. Koulibaly stepped up and he was lunging to block it. So he didn't have a whole lot of time. So to be able to put that ball in the bottom corner the way he did was fantastic. Look, technically, that was a brilliant goal. That was like a very Spanish goal. Yeah. If I may, you could tell like he came through Barcelona's academy. I mean, that's a Barcelona player type goal. And he did it. Give him that space. He's going to hurt you. 
exactly. And I thought he was their best player. Like every time Delefeu got the ball, I was a little bit worried because he mm-hmm. was taking players on. He was running at players. He's as much a playmaker as he is a goal scorer, even though I believe he leads the team in goals this season. So credit to Dineza for what they did there. I think the one concern I had was just that it seemed like all of our defenders were retreating yes. and, and perhaps they didn't need to be because there was not really anyone making any runs in behind. And that left him that little bit of space that he needed to put the ball in the back of the goal. I think we were a little bit fortunate because just moments before, I want to say about five or 10 minutes before the goal, Beto had an incredible miss from a wide open header where it started with a free kick. And this is something our friend Dom from Napoli Talk has pointed out on his show. But one of the biggest issues with Napoli is we don't win the second ball. And that's exactly what happened on this chance. It started with that free kick, which Osman headed clear, but then Nahuel Molina was the first to get to the ball. He played the cross to Beto. And if we're being honest, I think we were really fortunate that we did not concede there. Have you noticed this issue with not winning the second ball? I have. I'm going to refer also to the goal as well after I speak about winning the second balls. But that's a problem of positioning in and of itself, that particular problem. When you see a team not winning second balls, it's mostly due to just lack of concentration in my eyes. I don't know what's going on because in the beginning of the season, we did not have this problem. Defensively, we were so solid. Even throughout the whole COVID outbreak and injuries, whatnot, we had to make makeshift lineups, 3-5-2. You didn't see those problems. I don't really understand what is happening within the past month, month and a half because I really don't see the same Napoli that I did in the beginning of the season, but somehow they're making it through and that's really all that matters. And also I'm going to refer, like I said, back to the goal. You mentioned the players in step. That is another one. Like Dom said with the second balls, it's another problem that we're seeing. I would say the past five or six games, I see at least one guy and it doesn't end up always in a goal but it, there's at least one player on the top of the box that just has a free shot all the time, every game, at least once a game. And perfect example, De Jong against us on the Barcelona game. Amazing goal. Couldn't place it more perfectly. However, any world-class talent is going to place it like that with that much time and space. Not taking anything away from the goal because it no, is a beautiful goal. I completely agree with you. I mean, but, that's the whole point. Sometimes stepping up is just about putting that extra bit of pressure on the player. Just taking him off. Just taking exactly. him off his game. Exactly. And when you don't do that to a player like De Jong, he will always hurt you 10 out of 10 times. Yeah, absolutely. And like you said, Delefeu comes from the same <laughs> the same club. Comes from the so same they, team, yeah. They're cut from the same cloth. Udinese had one other chance in the first half. I think it was around the half hour mark where it was from a corner kick and Pablo Mati got a, a header that was heading for the top corner and Ospina made a ridiculous save. So I think in that sense, we were a little bit fortunate to not fall behind. But I mentioned this, how this half was different than in the Milan game. The, the big difference really was that we created chances. And I think that's what made me feel like there were at least some positive takeaways in the Milan game. It really did feel like 
either that match was going to end in a draw or it would be decided with exactly the type of goal that was scored by Giroud, where it was kind of a bit of a fluke, weird bounce type of situation because it was so tight and neither side was really creating many chances or conceding many chances, I guess is another way to look at it. It was two very sound defensive teams. In this match, it was a bit more open. We had Koulibaly had a header early in the first half that Silvestri stopped. Lorenzo Insigne, of all people, had a chance on a header on a across another ball by Politano with his right boot, which we're going to talk about a little bit later. And then I thought after that chance by Mari that Ospina stopped, that's when Napoli really started to take over a little bit and we started to create some chances of our own. There was one play where Koulibaly played a ridiculous long ball for it to Insigne and he did really well to take it down. And I want to give him the benefit of the doubt and say that he broke Bacal's ankles with his step over, but I'm pretty sure Bacal just slipped. <laughs> and then he tried the Tirajiro, but it looked like Silvestri just got a fingertip on it. I don't think the ball would have went in anyways, but we got the corner kick there. Then we had a chance for Fabian, where again, Angisa, who was pressing high for a lot of the first half, which was another positive sign, he forced a turnover in the, in the Udinese half, Mario Rui played in a ball over the top, sort of down the line to Angiso, continued his run. He cut it back to Fabian. There, Udinese got pretty lucky because Ziegler got a touch on the shot and Silvestri somehow stuck out his foot and made a save. So that was another chance that we came close on. And then we had a chance for Mario Rui, who's another player we'll talk about later, where he had a shot that... I couldn't tell if it was just blocked. and I guess it was blocked and went out because we got a corner kick out of it. At one point, I thought maybe Osman blocked it. So for me, even though we went down a goal into the break, there were some positive signs, namely that we were creating chances. There were negative signs as well and that we were also conceding chances, but that half easily could have ended 2-2 in my opinion. We finally converted some of those chances in the second half. We're going to talk more about that in part two. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zipline through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Welcome to part two of the Forza Napoli podcast. So let's talk a little bit about the second half, which was probably our best half since the unbeaten streak at the start of the season, I want to say. Before we even get to the goals, though, Luciano Spalletti made one change at the break. He replaced Fabian Ruiz with Dries Mertens, and then he switched back to the 4-2-3-1. How important do you think that change was? Monumental. Season-changing. I don't really want to speak too much about his contract situation because I think that is playing a lot in the decision to not have him play as much as he should be because clearly he's still got it even at 35 years old. However, when push came to shove, Mertens showed up and he played a tremendous second half. Like you said, just a tremendous substitution. What we've been looking for Spalletti to do even in past games where he hasn't really made a sub until the 70th, 75th minute. And today 
I guess he has a Twitter because plenty of people have complained on Twitter about it. And he must have seen it. And he said, you know what? I'm going to listen to Joe Fischetti and Daniel Russo. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you literally took the words out of my mouth because I was going to say the exact same thing. I know he doesn't have social media, but maybe he's got someone now that's tracking. uh, He's got a burner account. Yeah, he's got exactly. He's got we got to figure out who that burner is. But it really does seem like lately he's been kind of listening to what we've all been asking for. And it started yeah. not even just in this match, in the Hellas Verona match. A lot of us did not want Insignia to start because he's been out of form and he didn't. And we got the win. And then, like you said, in this match, not only did he make a change at the half, which is something he rarely does, but he also brought on Dries Mertens. So, you know, that's someone who, like you alluded to, there's speculation about why he's not playing. Personally, that's not my view, but I do understand why people feel that way but i thought mertens played really really well it was the most that he's played since he started against caliety after that he didn't play against lazio then he played only 14 minutes against milan and again he didn't play against hellas verona which i think the hellas verona match was more just a matter of circumstance the way that match played out but I agree. I think he changed the look of our attack. He was dropping in between the lines to show for the ball. He was dropping deep to show for the ball. He's always good for one or two sort of clever little flicks or touches to a teammate. He definitely still has chemistry with the likes of Insignia and Osman. We saw some give and goes. And it was clear to me, I'm curious if you noticed this as well, but it was clear to me that Spalletti told his players to hustle in the second half. And I think Mertens was leading by example in that regard. You saw Mertens. There's even uh, footage of him, you know, kind of pressing the team, telling them to step up the field and really put pressure on Udinese. They just, they suffocated them. They did not let Udinese do anything in that second half. I don't even think they had a shot. I don't, I I can't remember a shot. Yeah, they might've had one. The one that I recall is, there was a save that Ospina made on Delafe where Mario Rui kind of forced him out wide and it was from a bit of a tight angle. And yes, it, it wasn't really much of a shot, really, or mm-hmm. not that dangerous of a shot because of how Mario Rui, who everyone seems to still think is no good, but he's, he's been having well. a good season. I yeah. listen, I'm gonna refer to my friend, our okay. friend Napolitando, all right, Ando yeah. on Twitter. He was the biggest Mario Rui hater. When is the last time you have seen a tweet from him about Mario Rui? <laughs> yeah, well, I think, and that's the thing. I think even the people that, there are some people that are hating on Mario Rui, for lack of a better term. And I think a lot of that is just, if you don't like someone, you're kind of preconditioned to look mm-hmm. for the, the mistakes and nitpicking. not giving them credit for the positives, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. People are nitpicking. So, But I, I want to come back to, to Mario Rui a little bit later, but... Back to to Mertens, the other thing you notice, it wasn't just that he was encouraging his teammates. He was doing all the little things. You know, anytime a ball would go out of play, whether it was a throw-in, a goal kick, whatever, he's running and grabbing the ball and getting it to the the other team. You know, if an opponent goes down on the ground, he's running and picking the guy back up. Just, you know, those couple seconds here and there. So I, I really thought that that was direction from Spalletti to tell his guys, look, we gotta push and we gotta play fast and press them. And and we really saw that for the the first 20 minutes or so of the second half. We won two free kicks in the first 10 minutes after the restart, and I think Mertens was involved in both of those plays. The second free kick led to the equalizer, which I'll come back to in just a second. And then even though Mertens didn't score, 
if you give him even just a sniff of the goal, he's going to take the shot. And we saw that in the 55th minute where he played a given goal with Insigne. I mentioned that chemistry. And then he let one go from about 30 yards out. And had it gone in, it would have been very similar to the goal that he scored against Inted. But Silvestri made the save. So for me, I agree that was a monumental change from Spalletti. Let's talk about that first goal. I mentioned that Mertens was involved in the buildup. We played some quick one-touch passes between Lobotka, Koulibaly, Mertens, Mario Rui before Mario Rui drew the foul. Danny, what do you think first of the cross from Mario Rui and then second of the finish from Victor Osiman? I think Mario Rui is an incredibly underrated crosser just because he doesn't, for whatever reason, does not trust himself enough, I believe. I think most of Mario Rui's shortcomings comes from lack of confidence. You notice when he starts a game hot, he usually ends the game hot. He starts a game cold, he rarely comes back into the game. And you've seen that a lot in his career. And this particular game, that was it. He started hot and he played a great game. That cross was vintage Mario Rui cross whenever he does cross the ball. I think that's really the main issue is when he does. And when he does, he usually it's usually a great chance for us. Going on to Ozyman's goal, I think he has to be one of the best headers of the ball in the world right now, especially right now. I mean, how many headers is it now within a month? Three or four? That was his fifth goal since he came back from his face injury. Obviously, he scored a sixth goal later, but at that point, four of his five goals were headers. And all these headers are like tremendous headers. It's not tap-in headers or anything like that. His movement in the box to get the headers is world-class. This is where fans put him up against Vlahovic, against Zlatan, you know, the top strikers in, in Serie A because of his movement. People try to only nitpick his technique, which I get. He does not have flawless technique like of Zlatan or even Vlaovic, because Vlaovic's technique is exceptional. However, Ozyman does all the other things that maybe the normal average fan does not notice. And that is one of them, his movement in the box. And it even goes into the second goal with the movement in the box. We'll come to that goal in a second, but I just yeah. want to comment on, on Mario Rui's crossing. I think maybe part of the criticism of Mario Rui's ability to cross the ball is the fact that he basically took over for Gulam. And we all know yeah. that Gulam was a world-class crosser of the ball. So yes. it's, the bar was set pretty high for him. And then I think you make a, an interesting point about confidence, which probably applies to most players. I joked on Twitter about that Insigne's best movement in this match was when he bent down to fake that he was mm-hmm. going to adjust the ball <laughs> before Mario Rui crossed it into the area. I think that's another thing we saw earlier in the season that Spalletti brought back, which was that just a little bit of trickery from the set piece. I actually don't think the ball from Mario Rui was perfect, but it was good enough. And and the reason why I say that is because it looked like it was just slightly behind Victor, but I said this in my preview as well. You don't need to play an inch perfect cross. You just need to put it in Victor's area because like you said, he's so good. His movement is so good and he's so good at winning the ball in the air that as long as you put the ball in in his vicinity, he's going to go up there and win the ball. And as you said, he's been an absolute beast in the air lately. 
I agree. I don't think there is a more dangerous player. I was going to say in Seti, yeah, but you could be right. It could be on the planet for for all I know. I can't certainly can't think of anyone. I mentioned his goals with his head. I saw a lot of other great stats about this goal after the match. Let me give you and the listeners some of those. I mentioned in my preview that if he scored, Victor would become the first Nigerian to score double-digit goals in multiple Serie A campaigns, so he did that. According to Opta Paolo, he's only the fourth African player to achieve that feat, and he's in rather prestigious company. There are the other three players were George Weah, Samuel Eto, and Mohamed Salah. So <laughs> those are the four guys. Victor's now on that list of African players that have scored double-digit goals in multiple Serie A campaigns. And that was also the 70,000th goal in the history of Serie A. So some pretty interesting stats there. Of course, for us, the most important stat was that that made the score (laughs) 1-1. And Mm -hmm. I think that goal ignited the Tifosi at the Maradona, and it seemed to rattle Udinese a little bit. And I was really happy to see that the players kept their collective foot on the pedal and continued to push forward. That paid off with Victor's second goal in the 63rd minute. So, Danny, this goal was not with his head. It was with his foot. And would you agree that that finish was not as easy as he made it look? Absolutely not. Not an easy finish. I even saw a few fans say that the goalie should have saved it, which, yeah, he could have done better. But I think, again, nitpicking. I think that was more rival fans just being salty, to be honest, that they let in a goal against us when they were expecting a 1-1 draw or maybe even a loss. So it was mostly Juve fans, so you can only imagine. But yeah, it honestly reminded me a lot of Ozyman's second goal just last week on the Hellas game. Same type of play, Di Lorenzo running down the line. Instead of a throw-in, he gets a pass from Politano, perfect pass, making an inward-bound cutting run gets to the byline and puts it back across goal. And Ozyman, again, perfect movement, finds himself open and slots it home. Like you said, it was not as easy as he made it look, especially. And maybe that's another thing where, you know, like I said, maybe he does have better technique than he does show because it takes a lot of technique to put the ball on the ground like that and not just shoot it out of the stadium and that type of shot, you know? Yeah, exactly. I don't think people realize how difficult it is to pull that off. And first of all, you need to have a striker's instinct to know to make that run to the Mm -hmm. near post, to the first post. And then, like you said, it's not easy to hit the ball first time when it's coming to you from the right and you're hitting it to the left, right? It's, It's a lot easier to hit the ball first time when it's, say, coming from the left and you're hitting it with your right foot back in the opposite direction almost. It's like it's bouncing off your foot. So it does take quite a bit of technique. And I agree. You never blame the keeper on a goal like that. I mean, it's so bang, bang. And Silvestri might not have even been expecting that shot because it's it's not a high probability type of chance, right? Absolutely. And you have to be really careful when you ridicule goalies, to be honest, especially when it's that close to the goal. I would be more upset at Udinese's defenders for allowing him that space to make the shot as good as it was. But then again, you could also give credit to Ozyman's movement to get yeah. that open. I mean, I think a lot of people criticize goalkeepers when they see that a ball just gets past their foot, for example, mm-hmm. and they think, well, had their foot just been you know, a An foot inch over, they, bigger. Yeah. Like, 
but I think what people don't realize is that balls on the ground are more difficult for keepers to stop than balls in the air. Because I mean, these guys are giants. <laughs> it's not yes. easy for them to get low and make those saves. Both goals, this was another goal that was scored in transition. And I keep referring back to how we played at the start of the season. I thought we played very direct in the second half. And as a result, our counterattack was much improved in this match. We won the ball back. And again, we played a number of quick passes. Koulibaly played a vertical ball to Lobotka. He played a pass to Mertens, then another vertical ball to Osimhen. One touch pass out wide to Di Lorenzo, the give and go with Politano, and then we get the finish from Victor. And it wasn't just the goals that came in transition. The third goal, if you want to call it third goal, the one that was disallowed Mm -hmm. uh, for offside, that started with Lobotka dispossessing Puseto before Anguisa and Insigne broke forward. There was the Mario Rui chance that hit the upright. That started with Mario Rui pressing high and winning the ball back in the Udinese half. And then the Zielinski chance at the very end of the match started with Angisa winning the ball back from Brandon Soppy before we countered with Elmas and Osman. So I thought our attacking in transition was much improved in this match. Now, there was some controversy on that second goal. And I don't know if you caught this, Danny, but the play started with Rachmani defending Beto. Beto went to ground, but the foul wasn't given. And on the replay, it looked like Rachmani might have tugged on Beto's shirt. Did you see this? And and if you did, to be honest, I I I have not. I did not see it. And if I have, I don't remember. I don't recall. So okay, I'm not going to post it online because I just don't want Juventini to now you know start a Twitter yeah, war. Yeah. It. But I'll send you uh, and whoever else wants it. Reach out to me. I'll send you a, a screenshot I took of it because if I'm being honest. I think we got away with one here. You think you got away with one? It wasn't a slight tug. So what you see in the picture is Rachmani has his right arm on Beto's back. That's fine. I mean, you're just positioning. And then his left hand is clearly pulling on the back of Beto's shirt. And and it was one of those plays where you see the shirt is like very clearly stretched. Now, I think Beto went to ground a little too easily. And I suspect maybe that kind of threw the official off, but that doesn't explain why VAR didn't catch this because on a goal, they can go back and review if there was a foul that that led to the goal. This was one of those plays where maybe some Napoli fans will disagree with me, whether it's a foul. And and that's where I always encourage people to imagine if the roles were reversed, because I think if we had conceded a goal and there was this type of image of the opponent's defender pulling our attacking player's shirt right before the goal, we probably would have cried bloody murder. So I do think we possibly got away with one there. But, you know, there were some other calls that didn't go in our favor, and we're going to talk a bit more about those in part three. The other one that was controversial was in the 77th minute where Soppy went to ground in the area and the penalty wasn't given for what he thought was a foul by Mario Rui. I don't know if you saw that one, Danny. I did. I did. Absolutely not. Yeah. Not enough. Yeah, I agree with that. I think I think he was looking for it there. I think yeah. that, you know, and, and they did show multiple angles of this one, which is curious. It's like, you know, when Osaman was offside, we got like a half second clip of the Barely. bar review yeah. and it was kind of being rewound. I don't know what happened with the technology there, but on the Udinese play where the guy goes down in the area, we got like fifteen different angles. <laughs> Oh, forget it. I could, I could go on all day about this. With the Tamori challenge against Ozyman in the Milan match, right. barely a replay. Barely. 
the Koulibaly challenge on Ben Asser that they said was a penalty, which was clearly not, 700 replays. So, I mean, it's not the first time. Yeah, So, but I ultimately I agree. I don't think it was a penalty. And perhaps there was a bit of poetic justice there too because Di Lorenzo was on the ground injured while Udinese was attacking. Now, I don't know if they saw him or not, but we're going to talk more about that injury in part three. And we're also going to talk about the yellow cards to Amir Rachmani and Victor Osiman. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as um, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more know, doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Welcome to part three of the Fort Sinopoli podcast. I'm joined by Daniel Russo to help me with the Udinese review. Danny, we won the match, but we lost a few players in the process. A couple of minutes after Osman's second goal, Amir Rachmani was cautioned for an intentional handball. That means he will be suspended for our first match back after the international break, which is a big one against Atalanta and Bergamo. What did you think of that decision? I think it was the right one. We also benefited from that last week with Hellas. So, I mean, you can't really complain. It was a yellow. Like, when you contort your body towards the ball like that and you end up hitting the ball, even if it wasn't intentional, quote-unquote, it looks intentional. And every time there is any sort of inkling of intent, you're going to get a yellow. And I'd rather not complain about it, to be honest. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. We can't gladly take the second yellow to Cecchettini in the Hellas Verona match and then complain about this one and not to get too philosophical or anything like that, but whether it was sort of conscious intent or subconscious, I mean, there's definitely a a movement with his body to stick out his arm. So I think that was the correct decision there. Not long after that, Pablo Mari got a direct red card for putting his studs into sort of the hip area of Piotr Zelensky. I mean, I don't think there's any debate on this one either, right? There shouldn't be, but there was. There was a big debate on Twitter, I saw at least. Plenty of fans of rival teams. Again, you're in a Scudetto race. You have to expect fans to go crazy over calls that go the other team's way, you know, the contender's way. For example, I uh, I saw plenty of Milanisti that were really mad about that call. Yeah, I don't know how they could be. I think you're right. I think there's a clear bias there. You know, Milan fans don't want Napoli to win, so naturally they're going to complain that that wasn't a red card. I don't know in what world it wasn't a red card because it looked like a a karate-style kick, and thankfully Zelensky wasn't hurt because we see red cards for putting your studs into a player's chin, their calf, that type of thing. This was into his thigh. (laughs) It was, I mean... I mean, look... You got people on their couches complaining about this call, right? The guy that even got the red didn't even complain about it. Mari did not complain once. He just looked, yeah. you know, perplexed, try to be like, oh, what did I do? Yeah, yeah. That's normal. It happens all the time, even though players know what they did. And he just, he accepted it and went off. The only one complaining was the coach. Yeah, exactly. I don't think there's any debate. You know, fans online can say what they want. 
curiously, it was the second consecutive match that one of our opponents had a player sent off. So that's been going our way, at least. Yes. You know, a decision that was perhaps not so obvious was the yellow card to Victor Osman in the 92nd minute, so very end of the match. This one seemed a little bit harsh to me. A little, very. Not a yellow. Not even in any universe. There's no universe where that's a yellow. It's in the rule book. You, it's an unintentional handball where it hits another part of his body first. It's not a yellow. You could argue that it was a foul. You could give another free kick like they did, but you could never give a yellow for that. I don't see where the referee saw that it was okay to give a yellow there. Maybe he didn't see the first contact with the foot. That's the only explanation I have. I agree with that completely. I think, I mean, we have the benefit of after the match, we start slowing footage down and zooming mm-hmm. in on things. And, and there was a video going around that I think clearly showed that the ball hit his foot first and then his arm. And as you said, based on the rules, that is not a yellow card. Now, my understanding is that VAR can review a yellow card if it's a second yellow that results in a yes. dismissal, but it cannot review just a yellow card. And I think that's where had VAR been able to look at that play, it might've been reversed, but they simply yeah. cannot, you know, now anything can be appealed. And I certainly wouldn't put it past the Laurentiis to appeal. I think he did that last season as well and got he Victor has. out of uh, missing a game due to suspension. I haven't checked yet if the league released any sort of apologies or anything like that. I think it was too close of a call that they probably won't, but that is, a pretty significant loss because we've been so dependent on Victor to score for us this season. So, you know, we'll see how, how the club deals with this. I think not that Patania would start over Mertens anyways, but with Patania hurt, we can say definitively that Mertens will start at striker for the Atalanta match. How confident are you that Mertens can come in and get the job done? There's history of it too, albeit he was younger, but he did when we needed him most. He came up in that one match against Atalanta, I believe in 2018 away. So who knows? Maybe he repeats history and scores another and we win 1-0. I'm definitely confident. I Listen, I'm, I'm a big Mertens fanboy. Regardless of how old he is, whether he's out of form, in form, I don't care. I'm always on his side. <laughs> I mean, it's probably biased, but I believe in him. I think he'll he'll lead us well. There's also a more a more recent history as well. I mean, if you look at when Osman got hurt against Inter, Mertens came in and scored a lot of goals. I think he scored five goals. If you include that Inter match, he scored five goals in four matches. And I believe over the eleven matches, which includes the the first two that Victor was back in the squad, because he needed a couple of games to get back into form where he didn't start. So if you include those two, over 11 matches, Merton scored seven. So that's pretty good production, again, especially for a 35-year-old. So we do have a, a precedent from this season. At the same time, I'm concerned because Osman has been the source of all of our goals lately. We scored 10 goals in our last seven matches, and Osman has scored six of them. So that worries me a little bit. The other concern, of course, is the loss of Giovanni Di Lorenzo, 
He collided with Marco Silvestri and left the match with a suspected knee injury. The club confirmed on Sunday that he suffered a second-degree knee strain, which has about a one-month recovery time. That means not only will Di Lorenzo miss Italy's World Cup qualifiers, which is unfortunate for Italy, but for Napoli fans, he'll definitely miss the Atalanta and Fiorentina matches, and he'll likely miss the Roma match as well. Those are probably the three most difficult matches we have left in the schedule, though we do mm-hmm. have to play Sassuolo after that as well. For me, the loss of Di Lorenzo is just as significant as the loss of Osiman. Perhaps it's even more significant when you consider that Osiman's only going to miss one match due to suspension, whereas Di Lorenzo is probably going to miss three matches. How are you feeling about losing Di Lorenzo? Very uneasy. You put it perfectly. I mean, we have the toughest stretch of the season up until the last, you know, game right coming up next with the next three games. And when you don't have one of our most consistent performers, one of our best players, in my opinion, Di Lorenzo, especially at a very important position, it can hurt us. And I believe Malquit's also struggling with injuries as well, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, he was in the squad for this match, which I was surprised about because he didn't complete the full group training. And it's very unusual for us to include a player in the squad when he hasn't completed a full training mm-hmm. session. But I think that's why Zanoli came into the match. And Zanoli only played, this was his sixth appearance, and he had played a total of 27 minutes in those previous five appearances. So to me, that means that Malqui was simply not fit to play. I don't know what the point of calling him up was, no. but my hope is that If he got called up to the squad, then he's probably close to being ready. We have a two-week international break, so my hope is that he'll be recovered by the time we get to that Atalanta match. But I I was going to ask you that, you know, would you rather see Malqui play there, or from the little we've seen from Zanoli, would you rather see him play right back? No, I, I love putting a kid in there, you know, especially a kid from our Primavera. However, in these specific matches, you want experience. And Malquit's shown experience. And whenever he's come on, he's actually played pretty decent this year, I believe. Nothing to Di Lorenzo's level. However, he's been a good servant. And I hope he can recover in time for those games. Yeah, I agree with that. I think you have to go with Malquit and just hope that he doesn't pick up another injury before yeah. Di Lorenzo gets back because he's he's been rather injury prone the whole time we've had him. And then if you're desperate, you go to Zanoli. But yeah, I agree. You would need the experience. These are the biggest matches of the season. I've even seen some rumors that Spalletti might think about going back to the three-man back line. I hope we don't see that only because that would mean, you know, at least for the Atalanta match, I don't want to see it. Maybe after that, we can play around because we have... Koulibaly, Rachmani, and Juan Jesus. I just don't want to see a back line with Koulibaly, Juan Jesus, and Axel Twanzebe, just because Twanzebe hasn't played at all. He hasn't played that one appearance. Hmm. So, yeah, I think maybe for Atalanta, we go with Malquia right back, obviously Maria left back, and then Koulibaly and Juan Jesus in the middle. And then after that, we can possibly look at different formations. Let's close the pod with some individual performances. I want to start with Matteo Politano. He's had a bit of an up and down season, but lately he's been very, very good. And I think 
correct me if I'm wrong, but I think he deserved the call up to the national team just based on this performance alone. Absolutely. I think he's been deserving of it for a while now. Even if he was not on this current form, meaning the last two or three games, I believe he should have gotten it just as a makeup because I think he should have even been on the Euro squad, to be honest. I'm just happy for the guy. He definitely deserves it, and I hope I hope he gets some minutes with Italy. I mean, Mancini seems like that type of guy. Like, we saw he played Sirigu for a couple minutes just to, to get him into the into the Euro. So I wouldn't be surprised if that's actually the reason that it's kind of like making it up to Politano for for being kind of the guy that was on the bubble in the in the Euros. For me, he's the clear starting right winger right now. I mean, we talked about his hustle. Right before the first goal, he made a play where he, first of all, he tracked back, which he was doing all game. I mean, his work rate has been out of this world in the last few matches. He won the ball back. Then I think he thought he was under pressure, so he forced his clearance a little bit and he gave the ball straight back. But then he hustled back into the play and dispossessed Delafeu, and that kind of started. A, there was a bit of a ping pong action, and then we mm-hmm. countered and scored off of the free kick. We talked about that cross with his right foot to Insignia in the first half, which that seems to be something that he's working on, and it's something I've touched on on the pod before. Where if he can continue to do that, he becomes such a more dangerous winger because prior to crossing the ball with his right foot, everyone knew that he was sort of a one-trick pony he was going to cut in on his left and that makes him way easier to defend you could just sort of cheat that way but now if he's starting to cross the ball with his right that keeps defenders honest they can't cheat and if they do they're going to get burned and then that leads to more chances for us meanwhile Chucky Lozano wasn't able to get into this match and I don't know if he's got a nagging injury or what's going on there but even after Politano was taken out, he was replaced by Piotr Zielinski, who played out of position on the right wing instead of bringing on Lozano. And then Spalletti replaced Insigne with Elmas. So that's a good segue to the next player that I want to talk about, which is Lorenzo Insigne. I'm really torn about this, so I'm curious to know what you think. Do you think he should still be our starting left winger? Yes and no. I'm very on the fence. See, it's such a, a weird situation for me. I get very into him, into Insignia. I get very emotional about him, not in a good way. It's a very love-hate relationship with me. It's always been. In the second half, I did see he he worked really hard, I believe. I saw some good things from him. But just overall, it's been very, very difficult for me to say anything good about him lately. and. Honestly, if Spalletti said, listen, I'm benching him for the rest of the season, he'd definitely have, it would be warranted. Like I said, I've been on the fence about this as well. I mean, I tweeted, so I don't know if, you know, a tweet, once it's in in writing, that's your official position. You can't change it or, you know, people will come and and quote tweet you and post your, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you contradicting yourself and everything. But, you know, I tweeted in response to someone else's tweet that I'm not sure that he should be the starting winger anymore. And part of it is because he really seems to lack the pace that you need to have to play on the wing, especially if you need to support a player like Osimhen. Yes. Because one of the challenges we've had is we we go long to Victor and he goes and he works and he chases the ball down and he turns around and everybody's still trying to catch up to him. And I think that's one of the, the benefits of playing a player like Lozano or even Elmas, where they have the pace to be able to keep up with Victor and provide some of that support. 
But at the same time, I think there's sort of pros and cons. For me, more and more, I'm thinking of Insignia as a player that is better used as a substitute. And I've mentioned this before as well, but particularly off off the bench when we have a lead, because that's when you want a guy that's calm, a guy that's has that experience that can slow the play down, which he loves to do. You know, he, he knows he doesn't have the pace to take on defenders anymore. So when he does get the ball, his natural instinct is to kind of turn back and control the pace and keep the ball. Whereas there are some times where we want to push forward and try to catch the the opponent out of position or whatnot. So yeah, I'm really torn. You know, Elmas has shown good signs, but I'm still not entirely convinced about him. So I, I guess we'll have to leave it to Spalletti to figure out what's the best player to use. And it might just be that it's based on the situation and the opponent that, you know, you play the matchups and see how it goes. Or or maybe you play Insignia every other round. We'll see if, if that's what Spalletti does. The last person I want to touch on just very quickly, because we've already kind of touched on it, is Mario Rui. You know, I still see so many people hating on him, but, you know, like you said about Ando, I think this is a guy that has really stepped up this season. Absolutely. I've always had faith in the guy. I've always seen him as a player that, yes, inconsistent. However, his highs are very high. He He's a foundationally a very good player. And I don't think he's a starting caliber left back for a team that, wants to win a Scudetto. However, this year he has played to those expectations and you can only tip your hat to him. Yeah, I agree with that. And the one thing that you cannot take away from Mario Rui is the guy plays with his heart on his sleeve. Yes. You know, when you talk about playing for the shirt, him and Victor are probably the two that that do it the most and probably Koulibaly as well. These are guys that, you know, Mario Rui is the type of player that you could be losing 5-0 and he's still going to be running up and down and starting fights with people and doing all of that stuff that, you know, you wish sometimes that other players were doing as well. I mean, the perfect example. I actually posted a video a few years ago. This was Ancelotti's, I think, second year at Napoli when we finished seventh place. It was during that two-month period where we hadn't won a game. It was a way to Udinese. Mario Rui is like bombing up the field, trying to go on the counterattack. It's 1-1 late in the game. And he's looking around at everybody and no one's picking up the counterattack with him, you know? But that's the essence of Mario Rui. He doesn't care what type of situation the club is in, what's the score, what's going on. He's going. He's He, he doesn't care. He's playing. And that's what I love about him. Yeah, it, I joke around about this, that it's almost like he literally doesn't know what's going on because mm-hmm. he plays with that same passion regardless of the score, regardless of the situation. A few rounds ago, he hit the upright or he hit the bar and it was like he missed the net completely. It didn't matter to him that he came that close to scoring it. I almost feel like he deserves a goal. He has four assists this season now as well, by the mm-hmm. way. But you know, he's been taking a lot more shots. He's been coming close. There was also the play where I think it was the after we scored the winning goal against Hellas Verona, where he just like casually jogged back. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, again, like almost had no idea of the magnitude. Just of oblivious, <laughs> oblivious to the magnitude of what he just did or what we yeah, just did. Yeah, exactly. He just knows one way to do it and that's it. Yeah. Danny, that's all we have time for today. But I mentioned at the top of the show, I want to give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about Calcio Basta. So I'll hand it over to you. What's the show about? Who are you doing the show with and so on? Listen, Calcio Basta, it was 
I'll even paint the picture for you guys. One night, it's me, my friend Johnny, Gio Cozzolino, you might know him as, and, and Luca, Luca Sanna on Twitter. We're all like best friends, all three of us. And, you know, we're on Xbox live chat. We have a debate about Serie A. So it must have been a Juve Napoli debate. And at the end of this debate, we're saying, hmm, how cool would it have been if we had had that recorded, you know? To look back at that and say, you know, that was a really cool debate that we had. Like, you could literally do that. There's things called podcasts. <laughs> so ever since then, it's always been an idea. And we finally got around to doing it. And we're having a great time doing it. So it's kind of just three guys. We, we do very short videos, 20 minutes max. We do short clips for TikTok and Twitter. And uh, we enjoy doing it. So if you guys would love to give us a follow and um, and see what we're all about. It's uh, Calcio. So C-A-L-C-I-O-E-B-B-A-S-T-A-T-M. That's that. It's a play on words with uh, the Italian rapper Sfera e Basta. We appreciate that a lot. I really like it. I've watched the first couple of episodes. I think that friendship really comes through. I think that, you know, there's already that automatic chemistry there. And, and I know you and Gio have done videos in the past. So it's mm-hmm. it's nice to have a third person, even if it is a Juventino. That's okay. You know, yes. I have Juventino friends as well. It's not the end of the world. People need to relax pretending to be ultras and all this stuff. But One thing I would love to say about Luca is that he's not an insufferable Juventino. <laughs> okay. He's very, he's very level-headed. Yeah, it comes out every once in a while, but most of the time he's level-headed, and that's what I love. And that's why we, we get along really well on this show. <laughs> okay, so there you go. So that's yes. Calcio Basta. We'll, uh, I'll tag it in the post so people can uh, find it a bit more easily if they're looking for it in case they don't know how to spell it. But, Danny, thank you so much. You can find Danny on Twitter at Danny underscore Russo 22. That's Danny, D-A-N-I. You can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti5, and you can find the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forza Napoli Pod. I'll be back later in the week to review our latest Primavera and Femminile matches, but until then, I'm Joe Fischetti. Forza Napoli sempre. Forza Napoli, raga. Podcast Network. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.